On behalf of the group and myself, I'd like to say thank you for the audition. <laughs> thank you, and I hope we pass the audition. That's how it goes. So, on behalf of the on behalf of the group and myself, I'd like to say thank you. <laughs> and I hope we pass the audition. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the podcast. This episode was brought to you by the Brothers Grimm, 420 Australia, and our newest sponsors, Organic Gardening Solutions and The Billy Shop. On this episode, we feature Mr. Soul of the Brothers Grimm. This episode's fairly laid back, and you'll probably hear it. Enjoy. Alrighty, so a big thank you and welcome to Mr. Soul for coming on the show. Thank you. Very good to be here. <laughs> so we're uh, just in the Brothers Grimm facility right now in Colorado, and if you can hear any fans, it's just the uh, fans keeping the plants happy behind us. So... If you hear any fans, they're fans. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you are as well. <laughs> so the first question I like to ask everyone is, let's go back to the start. The first time you ever smoked weed, what was it like? That's a good story, actually. I was at my um, uncle's, um, well, I should say where my uncle lived with my grandparents, and I have an uncle who, my father being the oldest in the family, has a, an, has a brother who's only five years older than myself. And so I always admired him. Uh, you know, he was the cool uncle that, being that bit older than myself, when I would visit my grandparents' house, he would always have interesting things in the drawers and all around in his room, and I'd always go in and explore. One day, I found what was a a half ounce of Acapulco gold in his drawer, and I picked that up, and he happened to be in the room as I did it, and I said, wow, what is this? I said, is this real marijuana? And he's like, yeah, that's Acapulco gold. It's some of the best in the world. And I said, he said, have you already smoked marijuana? I said, my friends and I have been trying, you know, we've been out in the woods and trying to find, like, if there's any wild marijuana growing, then, you know, we tried to dry it out and smoke it, and I don't know how crazy that is if everyone's had that, but growing up in the 70s, you know, I guess <clears throat> we didn't have access to information like you do today and realize our folly. So at that moment, I was then uh, taken away from all of that silliness, and uh, my uncle rolled a real joint and took me out in the backyard where he had this old van that was a, a abandoned back there we sat in the front seat and smoked the joint when I went into a dream as the Beatles said and um, everything you know from the moment someone spoke you know uh, it was like this spell had been cast where I'm guessing I'm gonna wake up later and this didn't really happen you know I was just (laughs) dreaming it all you know that was I just felt a an affinity to uh, and uh, a great liking of uh, that experience and sought it out, you know, in years after. <clears throat> Didn't come as frequently as, you know, someone might today where they say, hey, I really like marijuana. I'm going to start smoking it all the time and the availability is there. <clears throat> it was more of um, over the next year or two, I'd have a few experiences where working in a nightclub uh, as a busboy or a waiter or something in uh, those circles, there were people who were dealing pounds of marijuana and you know I was just 17 or 18 in high school and I can remember them uh, sort of implying what they were doing and saying do you want some and they gave me like a matchbox full of this great weed and 
I remember enjoying that to myself, you know, and having a couple of joints of that, you know. And then from there, I started to, you know, obviously uh, meet people and have friends in school that were more into this culture. And we started having the availability of marijuana much more frequently. And, and it got better and better at, at a rapid rate. I was in high school. I was in 10th grade in 1975, and you would buy an ounce of weed for $40. Uh, it was, you know, $10 per quarter, basically, at that time. And yeah. then all of a sudden, you know, like five or ten years later, you know, all those prices sort of tripled and went crazy. <laughs> and it was like three and four hundred and five hundred dollars for an ounce in the 90s. And now things have calmed back down from there and such. But um, I know I'm going tangential on you. So, yeah, that was my no, first experience good. getting high um, and experiencing what marijuana was. And I... I've never had another drug. I liked LSD very much, obviously. I don't know why that's obvious. <coughs> Sorry, I take that back. But I have commented many times that my photography is influenced by LSD and comic books, so that, that could be out there. You know, People know that. Yeah, anyway. I, I definitely think it shows. So those two drugs, uh, if you will, um, have always been something that I felt were very natural and uh, my body had an affinity to. I never liked barbiturates and speed and these kinds of uh, drugs. They always felt like an artificial thing. Whereas uh, those other, you know, the two that I mentioned are um, either natural or a synth synthetic version of something that is natural, like psilocybin. And um, so, yeah, I guess, yeah, what feels good for my body is, is what I go for rather than, you know, I don't like to beat myself up with alcohol and drink yeah. all night like some people. And uh, yeah. not that anything's wrong with the, that <laughs> lifestyle if they like it, but... Uh, it's not for me because I was a sporty guy. I rode bicycles most of my life and, yeah. and did that sort of thing, motocross, bicycle racing. And, uh, I appreciated being able to get on the bike the next morning and not feel like shit and be able to actually go out there and punish the other guys. You know, it's a big testosterone thing, you know, uh, yeah. when you're all out on your bicycles and racing each other to the town line or who can get to the hill at the top uh, fastest <laughs> and such. So... How long did it take before you transitioned from just enthusiast to home grower? I always felt like, oh, growing it would be so difficult. And um, I was a child of about uh, 10, and I remember planting some pumpkin seeds, and that they didn't come up. And I felt like, oh, growing a plant's very hard. You know, I had that mindset for some reason. But then, uh, <clears throat> so consequently, never really tried all through high school, uh, you know, and I didn't even understand the concept of light photo, photo periods and uh, triggering the flowering response in the plant. <clears throat> in fact, when I was in college at the age of about uh, 21, I did discover that having picked up a book, uh, Marijuana Horticulture by Jorge Cervantes, and I took that... <clears throat> read it you know like cover to cover in a day and i was just fascinated by the whole idea that so that's how it works you mean you can keep them from flowering and you can make them flower just by changing the amount of daylight that they receive i mean that was just phenomenal for me to, to that concept was like so simple and elegant and beautiful all at once and gave me such power and you know control over what i could do my mind just started my imagination started to go like wow that means you know xyz yeah. And I went from there, and it was a pretty short time. Within a year, I had done some closet grows and outdoor grows and near the college. Had lots of questions. Um, started finding that, you know, you could order seeds online. Got Super Sativa Seed Club going. And 
ordered one or two of their packs of seeds. And in those days, you know, you'd just send a letter back and forth uh, if you had questions. There was no email. <clears throat> that was uh, 84, probably, to 86, somewhere in that period, and when we first started connecting. And um, through, those e- through those mails, uh, the company's owner, called a guy named Kesh, K-E-E-S, uh, wrote back to me saying, you know, you ask some very interesting questions. You seem to be an intelligent guy. You seem to understand what you're doing. And we need people like yourself over in the United States to help us. Would you be willing to work with us? Not knowing exactly what that meant. It was a little vague. I said, sure, let me know um, <clears throat> what you have in mind. You know, here's my phone number. And he called me uh, after, got, after he got that letter. <clears throat> Told me what it was is that they would send me bulk quantities of each of the strains of their seeds my job would be to receive letters from them with the addresses and quantities of each of the seeds that are to be sent to each of those addresses, and I'd be their um, courier, you know, inside the United States. Domestic forwarding. Yeah, distribute their seeds to the individuals who had purchased them from them. They paid them, and they're then paying me in envelopes of $100 bills that would come weekly as well with the orders, and they would, you know, pay more for a larger order, you know, for the processing of a larger and a smaller order. You don't need to know all the details. But anyway, that was my job for them for four years, basically, while I went through the last year of graduate school, then working probably the first two years of my job out of college. Then I met a woman who insisted that I give up all the marijuana stuff. So if we just backtrack a little bit, while you were growing out the SSC stock, what was your favorite of all of the stock you grew out? Because we've heard from Skunk VA. He mentioned that the Beatrix Choice was one of his favorites that doesn't often get a mention. I never grew it. I, I would probably agree. I, I, you know, I always sort of drooled over when I saw the pictures that they posted of it in their um, brochures and so on. Um, but I never did for any, I don't know what reason, I guess there were other things I wanted to try first and never got around to Beatrix's Choice. Uh, but that and um, what's that, William's Wonder also is one I never grew. But for me, the Durban tie was the thing that I thought was like, wow, that was the most impressive and most personally pleasing to me. And I crossed it with skunk number one one time and then grew it outdoors. Seedlings, not not a female that I had picked out of a group that I had already flowered indoors and chosen like I would do today. But at that time, I just said, oh, let me put out like 30, 50 seeds in this field that I had chosen that I felt was secure enough and safe enough and hidden enough, but still got a lot of sunlight. <clears throat> Went out there and hacked up a field and got poison ivy all over myself. Later, I found out that I'd gotten that. And I happened to be going to Amsterdam for a week for a vacation right at that same time. <laughs> Just made it to a doctor in time before leaving. She gave me some steroids and it cleared it up in like three days. But anyway, back to the story. I dug all the you know ground up and planted all these seeds and they came up. I went out like, you know, two months later, culled the males. And then two months later, I had all these big, beautiful, finished uh, purplish buds and very sticky, impressive females that were ready like at the end of uh, October, you know, relatively early for the cross. So when I reported back to Kesh that I had made that cross, he was like, that's amazing. Like, we don't usually get that result. We really have a hard time getting them to flower fast enough to finish outdoors in a climate like Connecticut. 
he said, that's, uh, you should hold on to those. And I didn't have any more or whatever. And then having met the woman who I eventually married, uh, she made me give it all up. And I had to send the seeds all back to uh, SSSC back in Amsterdam and uh, didn't keep a cache of them for myself other than a couple odd packs that were discovered by my wife and thrown out. So I had to start all over after our divorce. So take us to the day when you went to Sensi Smile and found those seeds. Was that during one of those Amsterdam trips you just mentioned? Nope. Um, What it was then um, was I had been in Belgium having gotten divorced from my first wife and spent two years in Belgium I worked on contracts there as a nuclear engineer for a Tractable company. It's a civil engineering group that does all of the that type of work for the country. That's uh, a national uh, establishment, whatever. So while I was there, I had met a Belgian girl. Um, we started living together, and then as my contract came to an end after two years, she proposed that... If you're going back to America because you have no work permit here and can't continue to get a job, we could be married and you'd be able to do that, either stay here or go back to America. And I said, okay. <clears throat> we got married and I looked for work in Europe. I like Europe. I would like to have stayed. But I did have that conflict of being a divorced dad and my children were like three and six years old or something, perhaps even a little bit less, like two and five. And that was, uh, you know, pulling at my heartstrings. And so in the end, I didn't find suitable work there. I speak French now very well. At that time, it was a little bit rudimentary, you know. So I think that probably in my interviews, they felt like as French isn't really strong enough, you might not be able to, you know, keep up. Uh, and and what for whatever reason it didn't work. So in the end, um, the the things that always seem to have happened in my life fall in place well and a disappointment in one place it's always like a one door shutting while another opens we had an opportunity to go to boston and we did that and then um, before leaving i knew that when i got there i would want to be able to grow my own uh having gotten used to being able to get on a a train and go up to amsterdam or even just over the border in breda Um, i often go there just to save myself the trip of going all the way up to amsterdam but point being i would always have available smoke and of very high quality, I wouldn't necessarily be able to do that moving to Boston. I had no idea what the availability of good weed would be. And my Belgian wife was something of a little bit, uh, you know, uh, reclusive, uh, introverted uh, type. And so it really appealed to her as well that, oh, great, you know, you won't have to go out on the street for your weed. And I know you'll be home all the time taking care of your plants and so on. What a great hobby for my husband, you know, and such. So she was a very supportive wife, and after about two years living uh, in Boston, I was doing the cannabis cultivation full-time and supporting myself, sending uh, child support back to my ex-wife and everything, all from proceeds that I made in the basement of that home, you know. And it felt great doing that, but at the same time was very stressful in the sense that if it had ever blown up, at at the time, you know, late 90s, you could do 20, 25 years for cultivation in Boston, and my wife would have had a field day, you know, <clears throat> alert the media, you know, my husband is a complete scandal, look at this man, you know, raising our children and having them every other weekend in this den of inequity, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> there was that aspect of it that was stressful, and I think I said to you once before that I was also day trading, as most people were during, like, 99 and just up leading up into 2000. I turned a $5,000 starting point uh, into about 55000 in a year, 
and then uh, lost about 25 of it as things started to come down in uh, March of 2000. And then I just decided, don't let any more go and save that. We sold the house right a little bit after 9-11, maybe three, four months later. <clears throat> and having done that, we had some cash in our pockets, and I had closed up everything from uh, what I was doing with the Brothers Grimm operation in my basement, and we moved back to Belgium with a fair chunk of uh, money in our pockets. And I thought I'd sit on my hands for a little while and then maybe look for a place in Belgium where I'd have greenhouse facilities, indoor facilities and such, and restart up the company. <clears throat> you may remember G Gypsy and Nirvana yep. from, uh, what was that company? London Direct? Uh, C Seeds Direct uh, UK, I believe it was. Whatever. Anyway, a little dodgy, kind of a dodgy character, you know, that's his reputation, and I found it to be a little bit so as well when I met him. We spent a day hanging out, maybe the weekend. We may have seen each other the next day, too. Drove around a little bit, visited some people. Shanti Baba was one of them. Cool. Um, <clears throat> what, what was that woman's... Uh, the woman who does the hash in Amsterdam. Oh, I always... Her name... Mila. Made, Mila. Yeah, and she made the machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the ice... Uh, the isolator. Whatever. The isolator is uh, her invention. Yeah. Uh, she's touted to be the inventor of that. Anyway, met her... Lovely time there. Um, where was I? <laughs> Amsterdam. Yeah, why was I there? <laughs> so, yeah. So I, I had come back, as I say, from Boston, and I was trying to establish something. That's why I was up there talking to folks like Mila and um, Gypsy Nirvana, but nothing seemed to click. I never felt comfortable that I'd be able to like get the whole thing started again there. And I again went to sitting on my hands mode and enjoyed Belgium and played guitar for four hours a day and rode a bicycle two hours a day or four hours a day or whatever, <laughs> rode with the bicycle clubs on the weekends and so on and uh, just really had a great time. You know, I firmed up my language skills very much so. And that time, you know, people just assumed I spoke French and spoke French full, you know, all the time. Uh, so it was pretty cool, great experience for me. And then I came back to the United States at a certain moment after two years in Belgium because of the children. I said, uh, you know, the kids are crying on the phone. You know, daddy's basically abandoned them and decided to go off and live his selfish life in Europe, you know, <clears throat> satisfying his dreams. Fuck us. And, I, you know, I just felt maybe they weren't saying that, you know, obviously, but felt that way. And I just felt very guilty. And I had been in this marriage more as convenience as, you know, we were in love in a certain sense but there was also a limitation to that where when push came to shove we were at a fork in our existence where she couldn't return to america because her parents were older and failing and needed her my children were young and developing and needing me and so yeah. we had to sort of agree that i'm going back to america you've got to stay here we'll see what happens we stayed married on paper for the next seven years and then finally decided well <clears throat> Let's put it on paper that we're not married anymore. Uh, we're still great friends, and we'll send each other birthday cards and hello at Christmas and email and what have you. So that ended uh, in an amicable way. Um, and then during about the next seven years uh, in America, I worked as um, everything from sale selling uh, home improvements, kitchen, improve kitchen remodeling, bathroom re remodeling, 
got to be very good visiting people's homes and just doing little demos. You know, I love to be, um, since I was a little kid, I've always been the show-and-tell guy. My wife will always say to people, too, Ricky's like the, uh, the show-and-tell guy. You know, he'll want to trot out his latest whatever it is, you know, having gathered everyone in the living room, you know. like. And so that was how I was as a kid. And so when I went into sales, I just really enjoyed that whole razzle-dazzle of, you know, getting the person interested in having their kitchen done and getting them excited about doing closing the deal. That was the way that thing worked was you had to be in and out of their home in three hours time and either they bought then or they never would. It was a one one call close, they called it. Got to be pretty good at that. They made me a manager and put me in charge of, you know, sales team. And so for about four or five years I did that and then I was called back to engineering a fellow called me up and said I found your resume on monster.com you're a nuclear engineer blah 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 we are here in Boston and we really need a guy like you all right I'll come in and interview got the job started working for um, Arriva it's a French company finished with them after four years and moved to New York City, married a woman that I knew from high school, having reconnected through Facebook. And after four years of living in New York City with her, uh, working as uh, eventually professional photographer as a sideline job, I did also work as a nuclear engineer, but in sales for a company called High Torque. And after four years with them, my job was basically phased out. Uh, they were changing their strategy on how they did their sales and such, and it wasn't working for me and them anymore. But it was, again, a door closing that seemed like a disappointing moment at the time. And then a couple of months later, I'm finding myself being swept back into cannabis cultivation and seed production and reopening Brothers Grimm and being very excited at the... Um, realization that, you know, after all of waiting these years on the sidelines and cheering along the legalization that was happening in various states, finally the two by four slapped me in the side of the head and said, hey, by the way, you know, if you were to move to one of those states, you may well to restart your business and do what you really love to do as you're living. And so having started to, you know, scratch the surface of reaching out to my old partners and friends and Of course, Sly, uh, to this day, has never resurfaced. I don't know whatever happened to him. Our working relationship was always pristine, and we got along uh, famously. Left everything on good terms. But he's either lost interest in this business or been killed or is in prison or who knows, you know, what happens to people. But anyway, um, the opportunity was to partner up with someone who could be that other side of Brothers Grimm, Duke Diamond, And, you know, I was connected to him through Subcool, and I took a chance on coming out and meeting and found that he was, beyond my expectations, uh, excellent mate for me to do this business. And we slowly put it together from the very early beginnings of starting seeds that would be used to find the right males to cross to the uh, clones of Genius and Princess that I had recovered from the people who had been holding them. And you can imagine, you know, wanting to have rooms full of plants and making seeds, you know, great guns and looking at this little four by four area, you know, lit by one lamp and like, that's everything. My pockets are empty. I have everything right there in this little four by four area. And that's got to grow and prosper and multiply and become everything that, you know, here we are a year later. 
<clears throat> and it's a full-blown, you know, seed-growing operation. Yeah. With uh, we're in the black and operating, you know, uh, and with a, a future. You know, yeah. and, and always planning to ramp things up from where we are, and it, it's growing at a great rate that it doesn't seem inordinately fast or slow. Yeah, organic, just like we grow our plants. So, while you were a nuclear engineer, among other things. How did you feel about having this secret the whole time? Did you feel like you were the anomaly, or did you think that maybe there's another nuclear engineer who's, you know, a Mr. Soul by night? That's a great question. Uh, there's two answers to it, really. I think um, I, <clears throat> through that whole time, felt like, yeah, this is a secret, um, not only from employers, but I also felt in dating, you know, that was always sort of a delicate... At that time, maybe it isn't so much today. I'm now 57 years old, so... Imagine when I'm 30 or, you know, 25. And, yeah, I have that education. Yeah, I'm in that profession. And when I'm out meeting women or something, dropping that, I also happen to enjoy smoking cannabis, you know, uh, in my free time on weekends and evenings. I'm almost a daily smoker. It could chase away potentially interesting women. And I guess I should have realized that... um, uh, you know, the right girls are going to accept me for that. And the hell with the ones who don't, you know. But that was my mindset at the time. And then with the employer, it was also like, geez, I can't let my hair down and let them know that this would be something that maybe I'm getting away with the fact that I'm working for an employer who won't randomly drug test me and I know I'm safe. But there's no sense, you know, raising, yeah. uh, you know, an alarm to myself or calling any attention to it. So I had to keep that quiet. So, yeah, there's that. And to f- cap off that side of it, I think that um, <clears throat> I love this new expression I've come up with where um, the letters are the, the same number of letters and everything fits in place. You know, pot is the new gay. We're the ones coming out of the closet now. <laughs> you know? So I think that would make a great slogan. <laughs> and uh, so I do... Uh, that segues into your other the other half of your question feel that there are so many people yeah who were in the closet didn't reveal as i didn't that they were cannabis aficionados uh in in the closet you know and that's all coming out and there are statistics right now that i just read the other day that uh, the fastest growing um cannabis consumption age group is something like you know the baby boomers you know or or just my i'm a little bit little bit younger than baby boomer age so they're saying like people 50 to 60 or something like that uh, 50 to 75 that's the biggest most burgeoning group of pot smokers because they're all coming out of the closet and saying hey fuck it man i've always wanted you know i've always enjoyed this i have a, a lawyer who was a great friend of mine who lives in chicago who only revealed to me like during this past year when he found out what I did and I was being open about it, I had come out. Uh, he reached out to me and said, oh my God, you know, I'm, I've been a pot smoker since the 60s. I love really the good stuff. I can see from your pictures uh, that you're posting and so, that you're amazing. I didn't know about your whole history, you know, that we've been friends, you know, on and off over the years, but we lost touch for a really long time. And he's like, so you're Mr. Soul. It's amazing. You know, so, and in the end, you know, I send him some samples and he smokes them and he's like, I can't, and he's writing back to me, I cannot believe this amazing, you make better marijuana than I've ever smoked in my life, you know, like, oh, you know, the whole thing, like, the, we, are not worthy. we are not worthy thing, you know, so it's wonderful to have that sort of um, 
openness now, I do feel like, you know, coming, it's like a coming out, you know, and it's a great feeling, especially being open about the company. And I'm proud of everything I've ever done with Brothers Grimm. And to have not done what I just recently did, reopen the company and uh, pull this uh, back to the future thing, I would have always felt like, you have to understand, we'd go to cocktail parties or be at friends' homes and uh, the story would be trotted out by my wife or some friend, you know, do you know that, you know, Rick here, he's famous in the cannabis world, he used to be this uh, world famous breeder, he created the strain Cinderella 99 and you know oh, that's really, but you know it was making me feel like a has-been <laughs> I don't want to hear these stories and I'm not doing it anymore, it's like oh yeah, you know, it's like, don't trot that old story out, come on, you know, it's like I, I talk about what I do now, you know, I'm, I'm a photographic artist, I'm having exhibitions in New York City, you know, do that, you know, forget the pot thing. But then there was this excellent segue between that last job and before I came out here to Colorado, which was that a friend of my wife's, having heard that old story, you know, about me and <clears throat> was on vacation talking to a fellow who she had met two couples you know on the beach you know, hey let's have dinner or drinks or whatever later on they start talking about their lives the guy says i work as the operations manager for tweed she says what's tweed tweed is a company in um, canada that is the sole producer of all the medical marijuana that is consumed in the entire country they are the one official source that the government says is at least that's what I believe the arrangement is. So um, he hears through her little story about Mr. Soul and who I am, and she's friends with my wife, and he says, I'd love to interview the guy. You know, we would probably want to employ him. <clears throat> she says, really? I'll find out if he's okay with you calling him. So she did, and I said, okay. He calls me. We have a conversation. He says, we're going to get you tickets and fly you up here. I flew up. I spent a day uh, touring the facility, talking to the master grower and all of the other, you know, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a master grower there. You know. <laughs> the interview went really well. Everybody liked each other. And I felt like, you know, the guy wants me. And he told me he wanted me for the job. They were considering some other people, a woman included, who had come from an entirely different background. They were looking for an operation, uh, you know, cultivation manager that would be the boss of this fellow who would be the uh, master grower and he told me about a month later that okay management made a decision to go with somebody who was more immediately available even if they didn't have the cannabis specific experience due to the fact that our lawyers are saying it would take us a lot of time to immigrate you into Canada and blah 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 we haven't even made you an offer you may very well say you don't want to move to Canada you know I said yeah you know you're, you're doing the right thing it's cool I, I see what's happening here he said but we are really interested in another side idea which would be to license the Brothers Grimm name on uh products like if we were to produce Cinderella 99 and we could say that you know it's bona fide and licensed by Brothers Grimm and I thought that's brilliant sure let's talk about that whenever you're comfortable he let that sit on the back burner way too long and after like four months went by I'm been in touch once a month or so and yeah yeah well right now we can't and there are you know these and that I said okay look I'm gonna have to let that whole thing go I wrote him an email and said look that's not going to move forward, I feel, and I am going to relocate to Colorado. I'm going to reopen the company, Brothers Grimm, and I will not probably be interested in that right away, but down the road we could talk about it, what have you. But 
the seed that that put in my mind of, you know, this was a possibility. I could return to being Mr. Soul and running Brothers Grimm again um, just based on having been interviewed by them and the little light bulb went on in my head. And as the one door was closing with the job with High Torque as an engineer there, I saw that, well, I either dig deep and try to continue being a photographer in New York City and potential is not that great and photography and photographers are starting to go into a very uh it's all so ubiquitous just like music you know pay for like 15 dollar albums anymore you download music for next to nothing same thing's happening with images and photography and so many people are taking so many wonderful pictures with the technology that's available and the information that's available to become a better photographer so much faster. Imagine if you um, are learning photography now, you're able to immediately see the results of every picture you take. Yeah. That's a huge biofeedback mechanism that was absent in the days of film when I was learning photography in the 80s and I had to wait until I went to a drugstore and dropped off a roll of film and got it several days later to figure out what I did wrong a week ago it's akin to you're a musician if you had been forced to learn how to play guitar by having earplugs in your ears and recording your lessons while you played by sight and then later had to listen back to them, but not right away. It was only after you brought the tape down and had it processed and got it back a week later, and then you could figure out what the fuck you were doing. I mean, that lack of immediate biofeedback would slow down the learning process and extend it by such a great amount of time. That's what was happening to us as you know, burgeoning photographers of those days. Yeah. Now I've seen guys where um, they've had two years experience to, as a photographer and they're taking professional level amazing pictures because they paid attention and tried to educate themselves with all of the available videos on YouTube and information from other sources that they can just immediately learn how to create a great image and how to master the technology of their own camera and light and everything else so price of that is all going down wow i went a long way off on a tangent uh to explain why i didn't decide to stay in new york and stay a photographer well have, have you ever considered like moving your passion over to cannabis photography because yeah 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 i mean that's happening actually you know yeah. there was an immediate need for me to be able to take pictures and uh transmit uh what we're doing visually on instagram and other medium you know social media yeah. and uh, so all the nice so photos it, are coming from you and not duke well, no, don't. He's amazing. You know, most of his pictures have been done with his cell phone until very recently. And um, I just think, you know, I showed him, like, here, here's where the sliders are on Instagram one day. And then <laughs> I never said another word to him. And immediately he started doing, like, really great pictures and moving the, you know, controls around. Um, but, yeah, I would never. It's not a competition, mate. This is how I look at everything in life. Yeah. It's like we're all colleagues and we're all unique and we're all trying to do our own thing. I don't want to make comparisons. Uh, you know who Jack Kerouac is, the writer, right? Yeah. American writer did uh, On the Road. In his book, um, D Car uh, D Dharma Bums, uh, there's one character uh, who says, comparisons are odious. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, that's true. You know, like we're all doing our own thing. It's all, everybody's got their own scene. It's not a yeah. competition, you know? So again, with the photography, it did, uh, it did uh, parlay right into uh, an immediate, it, it became an immediate uh, benefit to me to be able to do that. Uh, I looked at my Instagram feed today and thought to myself, 
yeah, you know, it just dawns on me that it's good that I've been able to produce good images of what we're doing and make nice artistic sometimes and yeah. sometimes just very, you know, this is what it is, just so you can see the reality of what it is. Um, so, yeah, I have been able to play around with my style of photography and adapting that to taking pictures of cannabis rather than, you know, architecture and cityscapes, which is what I used to do. So if we tie it all back in, mm -hmm. I guess my question would be, if you knew that things would go the way they have, would you have considered coming back sooner? Oh, totally. But remember, even two years ago, Colorado had just started to have legalization, and I don't know if any other states were quite so accessible in terms of be a good, good enough place to live, in terms of creature comforts and where I would want to be, and um, also have the ability to grow with basically, you know, an impunity that I'd never experienced before and I could feel comfortable doing it openly as we are. So, yeah, I mean, if all the conditions had been right, I would have done it er earlier. I had gotten a mindset over the years that, ah, you know, I don't think the numbers work uh, and so on. But as I started to explore it and legalization had been running for some time, then I did see that, oh, okay, other people are showing me how this would work as a seed company and it could be profitable, whereas I had never really considered the seed money being enough to live on as it wasn't back in the day when I was in doing this in my basement in Boston. <clears throat> yeah. the, most of the money I made was through a, a contact I had in southern Massachusetts uh, who would take pounds of high-grade weed from me, and I was breeding for, you know, growing good Cincinnati to send to this guy and make my rent every month and pay the bills. Whereas the seed money was an occasional pop that came from Canada that was like, oh, that's nice to have that extra few thousand dollars or whatever it happened to be. It might have been as much as 15 at a time or so. But yeah. um, I didn't think that there was a way to make a living. But as I say, you know, it was shown to me, no, no, it works. So, yeah, here we are. And like I say, we're able to pay the bills every month and do what we love. So... Yeah. pretty happy with the way things are going so when we think back to the initial incarnation a lot of growers and breeders alike think of it as this golden era you know you had the original brothers Grimm, people like tom hill and vic high releasing strains did you ever realize that you're a part of an age that would be looked back on with you know this kind of reminiscent envy or did it just feel like same old same old at the time this is again you know <clears throat> with the uh, experience of my age and so on I've come across things where I can answer that pretty simply because everybody um, who's ever gone through this can can relate to there's a quote by I can't remember exactly who to attribute it to but he said one never knows when one is making history so it's like while you're making history you're just doing it you're not thinking you're making history and then you look back and you realize oh I made history so there's your answer. I guess it's universal. It's not unique yeah. it, to me, but it fits. I feel that that's a good response for myself as well as being a sort of universal response. Awesome. So one of the things I always um, noticed and also, you know, really kind of praised the original release of Cindy was, was that when you did the original Cindy, there wasn't really many cubing projects going on. And I always wondered 
Where did you get the idea to do a cube? It's it's even today, not many people think of it as a breeding project. A lot mm. of people are more into F1s. Yeah. How did you find out about <clears throat> what would be regarded as a fairly advanced breeding idea early back Nobody then? I know at that time or had ever heard of, or I don't think anybody has ever claimed to be... <clears throat> have been doing a uh, breeding project that involved cubing or was cubing anything at that time. I think I was the first person to actually actively take that idea and run with it. Uh, I just felt that uh, I read an article once in a High Times magazine that alluded to that process, and it seemed like nobody ever talked about it or no one ever really noticed it, but it piqued my interest, and I said, huh, it may sound simplistic, but each time a male and female mate, the children get 50% of the, the mother and father. And, and humans and mammals and uh, people <clears throat> that live on a timeline that's continuous, whereas cannabis can be brought back in time and forward in time, if you will, by taking a clone from a female plant that's being kept in a vegetative state it's as though time is being made to stand still there. And then you can take cuttings from that female and do any kind of breeding and growing with them that you like. And then the offspring of, say, um, a male of that generation um, being bred back to the original female, if you think about it, it's already got 50% of that of his mother's genes. So if we take a boy from the first generation, he's already half P princess, let's say, from the cubing process I did to make Cinderella 99. And she's contributing, again, half of her P to the mix that becomes the, the children of that cross. So having half of her already, he can contribute only 25%. So there, he's contributed 25%. She always contributes 50%. So each time, you're getting 25% plus the 50%, that next generation's going to have 75%. So then half of 75% is like 37.5. So you get, round it, you get a P88 generation. And then if you do the P88 generation, you're adding 44 and 50. So now you're at 94% P, if you will sounds simplistic there's probably some flaws to the whole process right <clears throat> however if you're careful about the male selection each time it's almost like you're doing a little bit of guidance like f2 to f3 to f4 and such when you're guiding those generations you're also choosing which plants to mate in each generation so <clears throat> i had in each generation of p88 p94 and such the males that would resemble princess was my simplistic way of looking at okay the more it resembles the female the more this one is carrying that trait and each time it did seem to make improvements and bring the plant more toward the princess however i did want to choose for more uh larger branches uh bigger colas sweeter flavors uh a more pleasing high rather than the devastating knock you down kind of high from the original princess you've been smoking a little bit of, of it lately yeah probably. i can attest to that mm. so when you started the cubing process um we know now that you use the shiva skunk as um the original, the original male. male why did you choose that and were you considering any others no i <clears throat> 
I had two choices in my mind. I could choose a very similar plant and use a brother, and then more likelihood that some family genes are already in the male side, and you wouldn't have to back cross as far. Um, but then it would me leave me a little more confused as to how to choose uh, where I'm getting away from the male side, the original male side, and getting more and more toward just the princess qualities. So I felt the other option was to go with something that was so obviously different that every generation I'd be able to sort of cull away the uh, skunky uh, side of it and go more toward the princess phenotypes and see that the females in each generation were also producing better and better quality with the sweeter flavors, the larger colas, the larger branches and more structure than princess had. So Princess turns out to be a more valuable plant as a breeding female than she would be in terms of just growing that for people, consumers, to want to buy that bud. Yeah. So um, some people would argue that Genius is almost as valuable as a plant as Princess in terms of the strains that they've gone on to create. Totally. Have you ever considered doing a similar cubing project with Genius? I didn't have time. I ran out of time back in the day, and now I can do, so I might. There's your answer. I mean, it's likely, you know. Um, I think that having done the Green Avenger, we really got sort of a plant that was so much beefier and uh, more compact and easier to grow, and you still had the flavor and the mind, uh, the, the psychoactivity uh, of genius. So right, right there with Green Avenger, we sort of hit on a nice what would be a seed form of genius but with many improvements okay. but if you were to try to go and get somebody the genius uh in seed form thing i kind of question the value of it you know i don't know i want it hmm. <laughs> i think we've improved it yeah hmm? yeah um so but again guys... valuable as a breeding female yeah um, so have you got any uh, rough ideas as to what might have been the male which pollinated the Jack Harrow which to end up creating the Princess, Genius and Cafe Girl seeds? I would like to say <clears throat> from everything that I've seen now in the past year or so of observing more plants of different varieties that are available for me to observe than I ever had before... I've now got a much better handle on where before I said, look, it's whatever, I don't know. Like, really, I wouldn't like to even uh, throw out a guess because it's just meaningless to guess, isn't it? You know, so today, having seen the structure of uh, Jack Herrer, uh, sorry, uh, having seen the structure of a Durban, a pure Durban, and knowing that... Um, Super Sativa Seed Club and um, Sensi, you know, they all worked with some Durban and it's likely they may have had some Durban pollen floating around and just a few, you know, that, like I say, that bud that I broke open in Sensi Smile, um, <clears throat> which I have to return to that story, by the way, um, was mostly bud. I mean, it really didn't have more than six seeds in it. And I mean, it was a reasonable sized bag that you get from an Amsterdam coffee shop. And the reason I was there, just to finish that story, was before leaving and knowing that I would want to grow weed in America when we got to Boston, we went to Amsterdam specifically to go buy a bunch of seeds. And I went in the Sensi uh, shop uh, right next to the, or right nearby the uh, Hash Museum on that little canal there. And I bought a few packs of seeds, one of them being the, uh, the, the, the Shiva, skunk. Shiva skunk, yeah, and a couple others. <clears throat> 
And um, lo and behold, uh, after having bought the seeds, you know, we want to get a cup of coffee and go smoke the joint or something. That's how I ended up in the Sensi Smile, just to finish to recap that little missing tidbit. Did you ever, after having popped the seeds, get the urge to go back to Sensi Smile and try to... <laughs> no, that was just such a chance thing that, you know... You find a $100 bill, uh, you know, in a parking lot. You don't go back there every day walking the parking lot looking for dollar bills. You know? But it was really, it was just an off thing that, hey, great. But I did, coincidentally, I don't think I've ever told anybody this story, but when I came back uh, a few days after having gone on that little sojourn and bought the seeds, I thought, well, the ones that came out of that bud, just for the hell of it, I'll try to germinate a couple and grow uh, and see what they look like before we leave. We had another week or so or a month before we were going to leave. We had a balcony and a little, you know, space there. I could sit a pot out. And uh, two or three of those seeds popped up and grew, and I ended up having to cull them just before leaving. And just like, you know, yeah, they seem to be healthy, and they grew well. Who knows what they could have been, you know. Why did you tell me this? I don't know. (laughs) Just to break everyone's heart. Well, every good story has to have that low moment, you know, for us to crawl out of and become champions at the end. (laughs) So I wasn't such a low moment at all because I still did have, you know, four to six seeds left that I brought to America. And when I ended up germing everything from the packets as well as those freebie seeds that rolled out of my weed in this uh, coffee shop, they turned out to have been the stars, you know, weirdly enough. And, um, you know, I don't recommend to people, as you know, today to buy seeds that have a lot of variety and, you know, be on pheno hunts. You know, you're causing yourself a lot of unnecessary work. I feel that one should just simply ask a few questions to himself, like, what is, what is it that I would like in terms of what type of plant, if I were to have to write down all the characteristics of what I'd like, might vary from person to person, wouldn't you agree? But there is such a strain out there likely to line up with what, every, what someone's wish list would contain. And wouldn't it be logical to just buy a pack of those seeds and grow them and, have, and get to the finish line? Do you really want to buy, you know, something that is a polyhybrid with another polyhybrid saying, oh boy, those are both great things. Well, you know, uh, chicken cordon bleu uh, and asparagus is a lovely meal, but I don't want to mix it with uh, a hot fudge sundae at the same time. They're both lovely things. But putting them together doesn't necessarily make a great thing. And many people who are neophytes to this uh, craft or this uh, passion or, or, you know, want to grow marijuana, I think they get caught up in the lore as many beginners in any field do. There's an old saying, a beginner never underdoes anything, you know, that usually you'll find that their errors come from overdoing something, over watering, over fertilizing, over loving, you know, uh, over handling, until they get to where they learn to let things be, you know, and not disturb them too much and know that less is more sometimes. So I just feel that sometimes people get caught up in the names like, you know, superstar fucker uh, and <laughs> and porn star. Imagine, you know, it's like a fucking porn movie. The, the, you know, the guy with the 12-inch dick is going to fuck the woman with the huge ass or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> but what they think is going to come out of these crosses. But having not at least ask yourself, what would I really like to have as an ideal plant? And is, does it already exist? And can I buy a pack of seeds where I'll reliably get a dozen of them instead of maybe I'll get that special one out of this? I don't know, you boys. 
I may be from a different generation or something. Some of the younger folks seem to enjoy that and take some pride in I'm on a fino hunt of some sort, like they're on a safari in Africa, slashing away with a machete somewhere, <laughs> writing home once a month, you know? I don't know. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Everyone I've ever spoken to has always said that they don't like fino hunting per se. Like, it's just kind of viewed as a necessity. So... Is there any plans for any feminized projects from Brothers Grimm? We're working on it because there's such a demand. I've always been against it, but again, you know, I come back into this craft uh, years later with um, many advancements in the technology as well as an understanding of uh, soil that was unprecedented at my time, you know, in the 90s. And I think that knowing how to properly make feminized seeds and not doing it willy-nilly... if we can prove to ourselves it's a reliable method that we can master that I don't produce hermaphrodites. That's something I've never, you know, grown anything that's a hermaphrodite, produced any seeds that produce hermaphrodites. I'm really proud of that. And my fear has always been if we tried to make feminized seeds, we may be making some percentage of hermaphrodites. And I want to avoid that at all costs. So if I get the chance, uh, sorry, if I should prove to myself and and over this next period of time that we're working on that project, I am convinced that, yes, we can reliably produce feminized seeds and people will not have hermaphrodites. They'll have great feminized seed or feminine plants. By all means, I'd love to do that. Yeah. So we're trying. We're working on it. Would you ever consider trying to hit a Jack Herra with a Durban <clears throat> and try to recreate the original seeds you got in a certain regard? I don't think so. Um, you know, that cross <clears throat> isn't possible uh, with what we have in the house at the moment. Uh, we'd have to femi- make a feminized yeah, version sorry, I of it. Yeah. That a feminized but version. yeah, by all means, feminizing it with that in that direction we have so many combinations that you could sit back and you know monday morning quarterback about how wouldn't that be cool if you did there's so many combinations you have to prioritize and select the ones that all right these are what we're doing as a company and moving forward and this is just you know maybe not an interesting thing I don't know. You make those choices. I'm sorry. Yeah, it could very well be a great idea. I just don't know (laughs) if that's on the horizon anytime soon. No worries. Yeah. So if we look at um, the average or even the better Jack Herra cut, we notice that it's not really as potent as, say, Genius. uh, Sorry, as, say, Princess. Um, Do you think that Princess was kind of just a, a one in a million where that potency got really jacked up? Because... I mean, if we think about Durban, it's not a strain that's typically known for its potency. So it it doesn't appear on paper as though it would jack the potency up of a Jack Herra, and yet it did. <clears> yeah, know, again, whatever it did, did. Genetics is a lottery. You know, it's a it's a statistics game, and with every strain that exists at the moment, sort of deriving from you know a few basic starting points, and then being morphed from there when you combine a jack hair that probably has at least three to five different lines that come into it from various origins and then the Durban which is just a land race you're going to get less variation than two polyhybrids but you're still going to have 
those odd uh, numbers that come up, those odd lottery numbers, you know, because each plant is basically like a lottery number. And if you have this, if you can envision a jug of marbles, you know, that we're going to put in a hopper and spin them, and, you know, you can only take out six at a time, and that's your plant. And you have only two different colors in that hopper, there aren't going to be a lot of variations among the plants, and they're going to be pretty predictable. But when you have 18 different colored marbles in there, and you're taking out six at a time, you may very well have six of one color. You may have, you know, one, uh, one is each of the six a different color, and another one that has six where each of them is a different color, but not the same colors as its neighbor. You know, so yes, there's so many ways those lottery numbers can come out. Princess is just one that the right combination to get those qualities existed and the next door neighbor in the same bud the genius seed grew into genius which doesn't look a lot like in many regards princess except in certain ways that you can see a family resemblance maybe more in flowering than in veg yeah so yeah it's a, it's that lottery number business of uh, the lack of predictability when you have a lot of genes in play like that yep. you just can't say well hey who would have thought crossing Durban to the Jack Hare would have boosted potency no I bet if you looked at the averages they didn't but you have those outs- the outliers yep. and she's an outlier basically yep. how's that so the brothers groom are now looking at working with various members of the chemdog family the cuttings mm-hmm. what is it about the chemdogs that are appealing to you and what type of projects would you envision with them I think because they are almost so opposite from the types of uh, strains that I've always concentrated on and been known for, the more cerebral, uh, fruitier flavored, uh, you know, those up highs and the terps and so on that are more akin to what people are smoking in dabs today, I guess. The Chemdog line, especially 91, oh, excuse me, appeals to me in that it's a counterpoint to the types of weed that I normally smoke and it's such a nice refreshing change and you know it's almost unbeknownst to me that my attitude my energy level and so on is what it is when I'm smoking my usual types of strains and I could actually use a little bit of chill pill sometimes and the 91 chem dog uh, will give me that like deep earthy uh connect back to earth kind of thing instead of being out in space uh and it makes me feel a body high that's relaxing and can put me in a state of relaxation and also has that old world like back in high school people would sell brown colombian weed and the taste had that earthiness to it and that Chemdog has that earthy flavor, so there's a nostalgia to the flavor. There's a counterpoint, a counter reaction that sort of is a good uh, mate to the highs that I get from the more sativa leaning cerebral pot that I smoke most of the time. And so, do you have any projects you'd be willing to share that you might even just vaguely envision doing with it? Yeah, we're trying to think about ways where that heavier indica um, lean, you know, you just can't get much more indica than these, you know, hash plants and 91, uh, 
chem dogs and those types of things that that bring that, that uh, Tommy brings to the table, uh, Duke Diamond, and he uh, he and I always think about like, wow, you know, what if we did this? And you know, recently we went the other way, where not the indica to in, side, but we used the hazy Cinderella ninety nine haze, super silver, super silver haze to uh, get princess and Apollo, uh, make that Apollo haze and the princess haze from genius and princess. So the next logical step is to sort of take um, a heavy indica side thing and go the other way, you know, and take princess and genius and see what would happen. I'd be excited to see, and we have seeds produced already from some of those heavy indica side. Of course, we have had to not take the female and reverse it to get pollen. We don't do that or haven't done yet. So if we were to try to incorporate chemdog into, say, Cinderella 99, we'd do something like cross the chemdog to another suitable male, have a male from that generation work back to the Cinderella 99, and then see how those heavy indica influences can uh, Okay. combine with the Cinderella 99. There are people, I'll just give you a little uh, heads up to, we didn't do it ourselves, but out on the West Coast, there are some folks um, who grew out Cinderella 99 crossed to some very heavy, like uh, OG Kush type, and they said Cinderella 99 was so dominant that you would have thought that that indica would be okay. showing its oh, stuff yeah. in, in that next generation, but they were mostly Cinderella 99 dominant. So, that's interesting, you know, and I'd, yeah. I'd like to, you know, see how that plays out for us as well. So, um, kind of just on the topic of feminized seeds, would you ever consider crossing Princess to Genius, seeing as a lot of people, including myself, consider <laughs> these two to be kind of, you know, the Brothers Grim Holy Grails, but as I mentioned to Tommy the other day, he said, oh, I don't think it would be too different to Apollo. What yeah, 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 yeah. We kind of did tie them together in a nice way. Apollo 11, in particular, was the goal all along to do that sort of a combination, never having thought about or wanting to, you know, engage in this um, reversing the plants. Um, so, yeah, Apollo 11 has that princess structure with the more vertically angled branches and uh, denser uh, structure. At the same time, looks a lot like genius and veg. Um, at the time when the buds are fully formed, they have the, a lot of the shape of the, of the uh, princess and at the same time are much frostier, have a lot of uh, resin, uh, whiter looking than either genius mm. or princess. So I felt like it really brought the two together and the flavors and the high and everything are, you know, it is kind of like best of both worlds there. Yeah, well, I guess the reason why I bring that up is because as you were just mentioning with uh, the Cinderella dominating that OG cross your mm. friends had made, mm. it does feel somewhat the same with the Apollo. And mm. I guess we attribute that to the true breeding nature of Cindy is going to tend to be more dominant. Yeah, just like when we were using the example of the land race yeah. uh, cross to a polyhybrid, you know, she kind of comes from that. Uh, so do you think C99 is stabilized enough that it's making yeah. predictable contributions each time so do you think if you did do a feminized of princess and genius it would come out more different to apollo seeing as there isn't that dominating nature you know like princess isn't as dominating as sydney necessarily huh that's yeah it's likely uh that you'd be you'd be uh seeing more variety 
Mm. Interesting. So you referenced earlier on that the Brothers Grimm do everything organically. Mm-hmm. What's your thoughts behind this? Is it just simply a preferred grow style or do you really think it's truly you know, superior? Uh, I am really a pragmatic guy. I wouldn't be doing this for any other reason than I find it to be giving me the best results with the least effort. And, you know, there's going back to earlier conversation, we mentioned, you know, beginners getting kind of uh, carried away, you know, and always making mistakes on the high side of overdoing things. Well, there's also what I call the gee whiz factor. And when you first come into learning about cannabis cultivation, you kind of go, gee whiz, that's cool about a lot of things that are beyond your present skills and abilities and may not actually be the better way of doing things anyway. But I know that setting up an automated room with all hydroponics and CO2 and lights that, you know, are on crazy cycles that you read about somewhere. And, uh, you know, these are the kinds of things that the, the, the early guys jump into sometimes. And um, what was the question? <laughs> so they get carried away, but they get carried away and... Um, I did too, I guess, in the beginning and wanted to do hydroponics. and I, So I have yeah. dabbled in that and did it even during the time when I was doing Brothers Grimm in uh, Boston. I had sort of pebble bed uh, draining tables with rock wool um, cubes lying on top of them. And then you had to stabilize the top of the plants with um, screening or, uh, or stakes or however you could manage to do it. I was stretching strings across the room and making kind of a grid to yeah. let them stand inside like of it. So, to cap off the, and answer the question fully, it's just a fact uh, that I find super easy, uh, seems so natural, uh, maybe there's no gee whiz factor to it, but I get my hands right in the soil and I mix it up. You can ask Tommy, he says I'm the best soil mixer he's ever seen in his life, but every grain of soil is like evenly mixed and evenly moist, you know, in that, in that pot, in and, and I'm touching that with my bare hands and getting that soil ready, and when I transplant something into that pot, it's just takes off like a jet a jet plane or something and I, I love that every time I never tire of seeing I I think transplanting is one of my favorite things to do I, I love taking them from the smaller pot and putting them in that big final pot and watching how there's a room behind you right there where uh, I was remarking to myself only 15 minutes ago how this room just really they really just jump right up out of the soil in a very short time and it's they're just yeah. growing like mad so I love that process and working with the soil, moving a few pots around, mixing soil doesn't bother me in the least. I enjoy it and I feel like we get great yields and uh, great productivity. It doesn't slow us down at all. Uh, yes, there's some bother to you know going around hand feeding soil plants with a wand of um, whatever uh, food we're, we're giving them that day, which is all uh, dragonfly earth medicine mixed into water and pH balanced and such. Yeah, coconut water and all that stuff. Yeah, you know, we have uh, mixed our own soil and we're also feeding with those types of products. And to me, it just seems really simple, um, you know. Works. You can do a, a lot of by feel. I'm a kind of a by feel person, I guess. Yeah. So, touching back on something you mentioned at the very start of the interview, you said you had the Acapulco Gold. Um, and recently, some tests were done on some samples they found, and they found that, that it still was fairly high in THC. Do you think I that could attest m- to that? Yeah. So, do you think that modern cannabis has 
improved the levels of THC or more so just refined characteristics about the high? Because I think a lot of people, and I used to be guilty of this, uh, think that you know all the, the Acapulco Gold, for example, was maybe not very good. And it's through hybridizing cannabis that we've got it to the THC point it is now. Do you feel that that's maybe not necessarily the truth? I think in those days, in the 60s and 70s, um, those fields were grown not by people who were really consciously cultivating them the way we are now, and that there were standout plants, and you got certain batches, you know, in those days from your local dealer, and he had gotten a pound uh, that happened to be better than usual or something, and so you got some outstanding ones, and you probably got some mediocre ones, but... That's uh, it's just the variation I think in the in that, but certainly there had to have been very high THC content and very potent plants coming from that region during that time, and people having stood on that shoulder and bred from there could absolutely improve it. And I feel that maybe the advantages one has today are that. You have this variety available to you very easily, and there's been a lot of experimentation, and people have created um, information and written uh, and spoken on all these subjects so that today, with the instant information of the Internet, you're well uh, informed about what the different types of marijuana might do and which ones you might like and how to get them and which ones taste the way you want them to taste and you know so yeah. many more refined um, uh, menu I guess you could say you know you can build build your own what you like to smoke based on the information that's out there and a little bit of sampling but in those days it was like whatever was around that week or you know happened to be circulating through your neighborhood or your school that's what you got and uh, it's kind of hard to compare the apples to oranges you know you, yeah. you just look back on it and there's a nostalgia too that every human being I think suffers from uh, you today have a lot of resistance to you know you're building up resistance people have high uh, Tolerance. tolerances to marijuana that we didn't have in those days that it is a lot of times periods of time would pass that there was nothing around and then when you did finally get some wow you know knock you on your ass and you'd be talking about how great that weed was and is it really psychological or was it really pharmaceutical you know in in origin you know the feelings and sensations that you had i remember having not smoked marijuana after marrying that woman who i told you made me give it all up and i had gotten a project as an engineer working on a project um in scotland and it was 1991, and as part of my job, I was required to just make a quick trip out of the UK and fly back in with my paperwork in order, because when they first called me in, it was an emergency, and I had to get there, and they put me in as a tourist, you know. So I took the opportunity to go to Amsterdam, you know, and turn around at Schiphol and go back uh, <laughs> to wherever, Edinburgh. And um, while there, of course, I went in a uh, coffee shop and... The first thing I ordered was skunk number one, because at that time, 1991, that was something that was like Popular. highly touted strain that everyone should try. And I had been growing it at home and, you know, going in a coffee shop in Amsterdam and actually trying it there was something I really wanted to do. But my point is that 
having not smoked for so long and my tolerance being so low and having been living this really straight life with my wife and you know was like a huge freak out that almost was akin to that first time I got high with my uncle in his backyard and came back in the house and felt like I was in a dream you know and then my grandmother came home and made us soup and we were sitting at the table and I couldn't stop giggling, and my uncle is like kicking me under the table. Stop giggling! Your grandmother's going to think something's wrong, you know. <laughs> and so, when I went into that coffee shop after having not gotten high for so long, I remember that skunk number one just made me feel like, oh my god, I'm seeing all these incredible visual things around here. Like if I had a camera right now, that would be such a cool shot, you know, the <laughs> the floor and the way it goes into the jukebox over there that way, and so on. So I mean. There is some subjectivity and some uh, you have to pay attention to. Two things. The subjectivity of uh, the set and setting of the people who are smoking the marijuana and judging how great it is, where are they coming from before they get there, you know? And then in that same vein, what was their tolerance? You know, what are they used to smoking all the time? Mm. That can totally change a review, uh, you know, I would do. Yeah, I mean, if I hadn't smoked marijuana for a month, <clears throat> been out hiking in the mountains, drinking from streams, and you know, living off the land and having this pure life or whatever, and came back to you know here, and uh, everybody say, "Ah, oh, welcome back!" You know, hey, let's all smoke something. That first joint would be so <laughs> <laughs> strap yourself. Yeah, in. man, stuff that I didn't think was that strong before would probably knock me on my ass. So take those things into consideration and also you know kind of reminds me that uh, cannabis cup competitions and such are oftentimes very subjective and i don't put a lot of stock in okay that strain won this time Mm. who knows there may have been three or four other ones that i would have preferred better you know yeah so so if we kind of keep on that uh topic of tolerance there's a bit of a kind of a a trend in the breeding community to quote unquote breed for concentrates you know breeding for terpenes that will translate to concentrates all of this type of general ideas is Brothers Grimm getting aboard that hype train or no? I would like to say that we have something already that maybe it isn't even recognized or appreciated or or people aren't aware of it that Cinderella 99 itself it just completely dumps huge amounts of resin off of the buds um, and if, if I understand well how that whole process works with um, extracts the more the resin you know that comes off the bud you, the more uh, what do they call yield yeah. uh, of concentrate that that particular strain would be rated at say you know I think that if someone did a good grow of Cinderella 99 and then were to process it and do extraction, they may find that it's hitting numbers for yield that are unprecedented. You know, I just don't think anybody's tried yet. You know, we released the seeds in uh, April. Enough times passed that somebody should have done, but maybe nobody has or anybody hasn't stuck their head up out of the rabbit hole and told anybody about it, you know? Yeah. But I would feel... I would like to say, you know, if there are people who want to buy seeds and grow a plant that will give you a high yield of uh, high quality, you couldn't go wrong buying the Cinderella 99 and just saying, you know, this will give an amazing terpene profile. It's going to give an amazing yield of resin, and it's going to have a psychoactivity that, you know, is 
world famous for yeah. you know really being enjoyable and the kind of thing that like the ladies for some reason <laughs> I, I have many times women come up to me Cinderella 99 is my favorite strain I just <laughs> love that the tastes so good and makes me feel so good and so on a little bit of an aphrodisiac I, yeah, I, yeah exactly and um, it's funny you say that because I was just about to segue into Foria is this uh, spray for a, you know it's a sexual lubricant actually with cannabis infused in it and one of my girlfriends told me that uh, she read somewhere that Cinderella 99 is used in that formula huh. because of the aphrodisiac uh, qualities that they found in testing other strains and it. Yeah. So I did not see that with my own eyes, but I'd like to believe it's true. <laughs> yeah, I remember um, I was talking to Duke the other day and in regards to the hash making stuff and he said that uh, Cindy is like the never-ending gobstopper. It just just keeps giving you more resin the more you handle it. It's crazy. So... You guys are looking to re-release The Killer Queen slash you have. Yeah, it's um, out now. Yeah, so it's out there. Go get it. Um, mm-hmm. Can we expect any other little special reduxes from some of these old school popular strains to make it out there? Let me think about um, something we were probably kicking around recently. Um, let's see. There was something that crossed my mind. I forget what it was. Like a sugar blossoms or something uh, where, yeah, using a White Widow, um, C99 White Widow type of a thing would probably be the recreation of uh, what we called sugar blossoms back then. We also have talked a little bit about, there was a plant we called the Green Giant back in the day, and we're sort of working toward... Uh, a similar thing we probably won't call it Green Giant but it's an improvement on that idea that now having stood on the shoulders of previous work I can see that we can do even better and we'll do some you know big yielding outdoor strain that you know can still mature in time for the northeasterners here in the United States and such where in Australia um, do you have sort of a dividing line of where people can start to be getting too far south where it's too cold in the winters or something or it does not not happen in australia at all i know people in new zealand and they still are able to do outdoor crops so i don't think there is a too far south so to speak um around there's you know like i i i struggle i, I kind of cringe to say it, but there's an area in australia called the, the emerald triangle you know, akin to the one here. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I consider to be the sweet spot of Australia to be growing it outdoors. And they get like three, four crops in an outdoor season because um, it goes for quite a long time. I know? guess. So is the daylight sort of not varying yeah. so much from 12-12? Yeah, yeah, very close, very close. So I think we get about 14 hours max, uh, sorry, 14 hours max, 11 and a half minimum. So yeah, we we get um basically from speaking to my friend who does a lot of outdoors, he says so their their first outdoor crops are just starting to flower right now, and they'll be harvested a little bit after Christmas. And he said those crops don't turn out the best because it's still really hot. It's summer, you know, it's like 100 degrees. Um, but he said <coughs> resin get, production is yeah destroyed real, real by larky, the heat. No, no density. Um, and then he said, but the last two you get in, which are as you're just getting towards July, they're really frosty, nice colours because you're getting towards winter. And, um, yeah, I look forward to those outdoors. Our autumn is also similar. 
So, obviously, you have a bit of an intertwined past with the SSSC yep. uh, being the US distributor. When you decided to do the uh, Durban Thai Cindy 99, did they kind of give you, you know, a nod of approval as a thank you for the help earlier, or were you not really in contact with them at that point? Lost contact for some time. At that point, I hadn't spoken to them for something like eight years, and they were upset with me for giving up working for them, uh, you know, and it was sort of abrupt because of having met that woman and getting yeah. married and so on. I was a young man and easily swayed by, uh, you know, the Female emo- influence. Yeah, you know, there was some urgency of, I don't know, sort of primal pressure to breed or something at that moment, you know, myself. So I took five years and made a couple of kids and came back to making plants again now. Now you've made thousands. Yeah. So when you did that, Mm-hmm. Were they they were still releasing the original Durban tie high flyer, or did you have oh. to track down a packet of it? Or oh no, yeah, that was actually um, a friend out in the North uh, Pacific Northwest um, who I traded um, a cutting of Princess to, who gave me uh, the Durban tie, and he was meant to keep that under wraps and not spread it around, and I believe he has done, you know. I think it may have circulated to another fellow, but uh, so from that friend who I traded the princess uh, clone to, and he gave me Durban tie as seed, ah, and nice. I grew out those seeds. And having done many years before, I knew what to look for and found yeah. a really nice early maturing um, little uh, group there, and got the male that was similar to that and read that to uh, oh I'm sorry I used the female and used the male the male C99 on that that's right so uh, that's how I got the Durban tie C99 I found a nice early maturing female and went with a C99 male so do you have any beliefs on the effects of using uh, males and females and the differences in the cross so what I mean by that is I, from memory I'm quoting this DJ Short said that he always found you wanted to have the most sativa of the two parents being the female I think he said he got the best results from that hmm. have you found something like that where you know like maybe you prefer to use Cindy as a male more than a female or hmm. you know anything along those lines well here's the thing um, <clears throat> that's funny you asked that question and after all this time it was that question that I asked to um, Super Sativa Seed Club that piqued their interest in me and made them think well, this guy actually is thinking and uh, has uh, a good understanding of what, what's going on with breeding and so on because I asked them the question when you make a cross like you know Afghani skunk skunk Afghani you know does it matter the offspring whether the male was the Afghani or the female was the Afghani or vice versa the male skunk or the female skunk and so he said because of that question, I really want to talk to you. Can I get your phone number? <laughs> and um, in my experience, he never did answer, you know, to my satisfaction in anything. But uh, in my experience now, after all these years, I've found that what you want to do is that the offspring are um, presumably female that you're interested in. If we can just like assume that, let's say you want to grow seeds that will give you a great female in general, you want the mother to be the type that's most like the offspring you're looking for, and the male will be less in, less uh, in, uh, of an influence because of the following reason. 
daughters are going to look more like their mothers in general, and their feminine qualities will come from the mother more likely. And the male contributes a uh, Y uh, X chromosome, and the female contributes an X chromosome. So each of them is contributing something to make up that female daughter. And when a son is created, it has the Y chromosome from the male and therefore, you know, has his influence. And being his sons, you tend to see sons looking like their dads and such in human beings and mammals and so on. Um, And also, when you are trying to breed a female, you're looking for the female traits um, to show you what the daughters will have. Um, and it's obvious, right? I mean, because the female, the mother's a female, the daughter's a female. The That's traits, those female traits that you want the daughters to have are going to be expressed in the female, hopefully. And if you're hoping to get some of the female traits from the male side, it's going to be a subtler influence. But, you know, what will end up happening... You have yeah, are you right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So where was I? Uh, um, if you cross the, the f- right. Also, how does one pick in the phenotype of a male and judge what female traits he'll be able to contribute when he has no feminine traits to exhibit? Now, one of the examples I use is: um, imagine you wanted to breed humans, uh, you know, you want, you wanted to have large-breasted women, okay? Yep. And it'd be obvious that, yeah, you would want to start with, take a woman who's large-breasted, she'll probably have large-breasted daughters. Yeah. Now, um, if you make that link to potency in marijuana, and you say, all right, well, we're going to want a female that has high potency, right? You know, and potency comes from high resin production and the female parts of the marijuana plant. So, it's very obvious to be able to pick a female that has the drug quality that you want. But in the male, he doesn't have any female parts to judge that from. Yeah. So, what do you do? Guys in the old days would do the following. They would try to smoke the male's leaves and flowers and try to find out which males had the highest potency and figure that would be the one that will give the female more potency and bring that into the cross. Well, if you think about it, that's analogous to, in our little example of trying to breed for large-breasted women, finding men with large breasts to breed with your large-breasted woman. That doesn't make sense, does it? Yeah. Because you're looking for a feminine trait in a male. Yeah. That's not necessarily going to happen that the man whose breasts are the largest are going to be a trait yeah. that he transmits to his daughters. He might more likely have large-breasted sons, you know. <laughs> so that's the fucked up thing about doing it that way. So what I found was that I would grow out a generation of plants and I'd have the females and males growing through their vegetative states together and I'd group the ones that were similar in their structure, you know, given all of the neutral gender traits, stuff that's not specific to a male or a female. Thickness of the stalk, uh, density of the internodes, um, 
thinness or longness uh, of the leaves and such, and group them together, and whichever ones turned out to be females and males from each group, I'd say, okay, the males from that group that had all of those vegetative uh, properties that were similar to the females in that group, be it, you know, tall, short, whatever, I have found that they are the ones that will then transmit the type of female characteristics from the sisters to the next generation. And if you do a little bit of reverse engineering and sort of time traveling, you can go back to our experiment with humans and say, okay, how do we know a man who has already proven himself to create uh, daughters who have large breasts? That would be one way of finding a man who is a good match for your bit large-breasted woman, right? Because the proof's in the pudding. It's not in his breasts uh, that, he dis- that he exhibits on himself. The real test of a breeding stud of a guy who can make daughters who have large breasts is a guy who Check makes daughters with large breasts. You've proven it. He's done it a few times, right? So you know how you find guys like that? Find large-breasted women and get their dad. Yeah. So you go back to the father of that large-breasted woman, yeah. that guy already has been shown to make a large-breasted daughter. He's a good yeah. probability. So yeah. you can do that if anyone is ever smart enough to you know, hold the male back and see what happens in future generations. Say, oh, fuck, you know, that male would have been very really you know, valuable, yeah. but we called him because you know, we already pollinated something with it once. Or, you know, sometimes people do that, but yeah. we tend to hold on to our males for a while and prove them out before we would ever... So with this in mind, mm. does that almost does that school of thought almost lean itself to make you want to use Cindy more as the male because you, yeah, if you refer- there, there are strains you could look at for example and straight away say oh well Cindy was the dad like I mean Space Queen's a great one. Um, well, you're talking feminized now, and when you feminize and reverse a, a female clone, there, I mean it's almost a certainty that this will now was Space be pollen that. Pardon? Was Space Queen feminized? No, I'm not talking oh, about okay, yeah, the, I'm sorry. just saying in general. Yeah, yeah. Not using Space Queen as the example, yeah. but if you take a clone, female clone, and colloidal silver yeah, spray yeah. the reverse, thing to reverse right. it and make pollen, the characteristics that are going to be carried in that pollen is much, much more likely to carry all of the feminine characteristics of the plant that it came from than a male who came from that generation and may have an entirely different lottery ticket, as we were using that analogy earlier, and wouldn't give so reliably all of the characteristics that that female clone would have done in its pollen. That would be my assumption going into this, and that's what you know, scientifically makes sense to me. But again, proof's in the pudding. Yeah. In the next year or so, as we go through the process of learning how that works for us, I will like to think that that will ring true eventually, but that's my gut feeling. Yeah. So do you have any plans or want to do any kind of CBD project of your own? Uh, it's so ubiquitous at the moment that people ask for the CBD and ask if we're doing anything. And, I mean, I've always just felt, ah, you know, I'm an old school guy. I'm a stuck stick in the mud or whatever. I'm in this for the THC. I'm all about, you know, smoking marijuana for the pleasurable recreational value of it. I know that it helps people, you know, on the medical side. And my partner's 
Duke's much more into that side of it. And good, you know, there should be one part of this company that wants to devote, you know, energy to that. But, and I will certainly go along with anything we come up with that he wants to do. Um, but it's not a big concern for me or a priority for me for some reason. I don't know. I guess I need more experience with it. I did have one nice experience where I had come from New York to Colorado and had a dodgy knee for a while, and it had been sort of like a tendonitis that wasn't just from recently. I mean, I'd been suffering for it a while, and somebody gave me some CBD pills. I think they were 30 milligrams of CBD oil, and took one or two of them, went away, never came back. I've never still to this day had that tendonitis ever come back. So I feel like the stuff is pretty miraculous in the way that it can work. And I'd love to have people also experience, you know, a really good result like that, like I did. Yeah. And um, so I'd love to get my hands on some more. There's one fellow who I did get that from that I'd kind of like to see again. And I'll put the word out to him soon that come see me with more of those CBD pills. My my wife is asking about them now. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So, do you feel that the true, medi- well, when I say true, it's obviously subjective, but do you feel that, you know, the largest amount of conditions are treated by not simply CBD, but a mixture of maybe THC and CBD? I've like- o- yeah, I've always maintained that it's the um, cannabinoid profile itself and the ratios of the different cannabinoids that go into any one um, plant that give it all of its uh, myriad qualities of different high flavors and so on. And um, the high you're getting is influenced by that, you know, almost like a chord being played on an instrument that it's, you know, first, third, fifth, you know, maybe it's got a minor seventh thrown into it and these kinds of things, and they're all subtle things. It's always amazed me in music how with 12 notes, you know, that everything can just be created that is created from that. And it's the same thing with the marijuana. You know? yeah, yeah. So if you could give some advice to some of the breeders starting out, what would be some of the things you'd try to emphasize as, you know, the more important things to be keeping in mind? I'd say, you know, there's a tendency to want to try a lot of different things and bring a lot of elements. And there's the old adage, you know, uh, too many cooks spoil the soup or you know adding too many ingredients is you know keep it simple the kiss method of you know know what you're working with uh and realize that you don't really necessarily need to have any wild swings in variation of uh, what you're breeding to start moving your uh, phenotypes toward the phenotype that you really want you know i've gotten such a good lot of variation from such similar plants that you know imagine you know they're only sisters they're actually sisters of each other genius and princess and the different things that have been created out of them can show you how from very little variation in the gene pool you're starting from you can achieve what you want and you don't have to overshoot by introducing more elements than necessary or uh, too too great of a difference in where you are to what you're crossing it to so keeping it simple always be sure of what you're actually what you really have you know never take something from somebody and trust that they say it's what it is and you know i believe them you know really do your diligence and make sure that it is what the person says it is 
I can't tell you how many times I've turned down people offering me cuttings and seeds and anything else. And I, I just say, Jude, you know, uh, thank you for your generosity. It's very nice of you to offer to send me free stuff. And, you know, I just don't philosophically uh, fit into the kind of uh, breeder who tries a bunch of odd shit. You know, uh, I have very definite idea of where I'm going with something. I know I already have the tools in my toolkit here. I don't need to reach outside too much. When I do, it's for a really specific reason. It's something that I think like, okay, that really makes sense. And I really know that this is what it's supposed to be. And I'll take it from there. And I would advocate that people be a little bit more choosy, I guess, you know. And ask yourself when you do buy seeds and, you know, to have, to have a starting point, what am I really looking for? What characteristics do I desire in the plants that I want to grow? Is there anything that already exists that does all that and, you know, matches up to my wish list? Why don't I try buying some of those seeds? And if they aren't exactly what I want, isn't that a great place to start your breeding project with something that was geez, you know, touted to be what I really want, and it wasn't quite what I wanted, but if I were to breed it a couple of generations, do some backcrossing maybe, I might have something here, but, you know, choose a good starting point. You know, I don't know. So Does that make sense? Yeah, so with that same kind of uh, thought in mind, mm-hmm. how do you feel about breeders using your work? And more specifically, I'll give you a few examples. How do you feel about a breeder using one of your strains in an F1? How do you feel about a breeder selling, say, not Cindy, because you'll understand why, but maybe, say, the Apollo in just, say, the pure F4 form? And how do you feel about someone uh, selling a cross that maybe they've made with an F1 Cindy but then taken to the F4 as opposed to just a pure Apollo taken to the F4? I feel that... It's always a compliment whenever anybody uses uh, Brothers Grimm seed stock and creates something from it. If they've taken Apollo 13 to F4 and it's done intelligently, I mean, it's another thing that I think that newbies don't understand is that they think maybe a bigger number means better, you know, like a a four-star general is, you know, has higher rank than a three-star general and a F4 is better than an F3. Well... That may be only uh, if the steps along the way from F1 to F2 to F2 to F3 and so on were done intelligently and correctly, then yeah, you are improving in each generation. But just don't go by the number. Um, As long as people understand what that all means, and I know that, you know, the general public probably doesn't uh, to a large degree understand the terminology and what they're really buying and so on. So... You won't be able to reach everybody, but you're asking for advice to people who are in the know and would know better and so on. And my advice is, yeah, um, uh, I know I had a good point going there. Don't let me lose it. What, what was the question again? Oh, you, how, they, how I feel about them using my stuff. So it's a compliment that they do that. Um, the people who are the buyers are probably not savvy enough to really, in, uh, in any great numbers differentiate you know what's going on there but i believe that it'll all sort of settle to a common denominator where 
everyone, no matter who you are, whether you're buying soap or uh, electronics or whatever it is, you don't buy the knockoff, you buy the real thing. If you know it exists it's, and it's available and there's no real price difference to consider, you go with the name brand, you know, and the originator of Cinderella 99 is Brothers Grimm. So if someone were doing a knockoff Cinderella 99, um, two things come to mind about that. You know, for the present, I think of it as, well, the guy who's doing that is probably uh, at this point going to want to just either sell out all of his stock or realize that it's sort of worthless because only somebody who's not in the know and doesn't realize that they could get the real thing would even want to buy that. So should probably have a fire sale and just get rid of as much of it as he can as freebies for buying, you know, here's a promotional pack of our knockoff C99 that you is free with anything we sell, yeah. you know, and get rid of it because it's like stock that has suddenly dropped to zero value it's that you're holding on to. Yeah. You might as well get rid of it, right? Um, so there's the present. That's the present situation. But the past that led up to the present, if you think about it, none of these guys ever played with Cinderella 99, made crosses with it and Apollos, and uh, the names weren't bandied about for this last dozen years. And I come back into the business, where would I be? I'd be sitting here trying to remind everybody who the hell I was, what my strains were. you know. The, so yeah. they actually kept the buzz alive and I'm complimented by the fact that they were so you know driven to continue in our absence the the work if you will uh, I've only tried a couple of people's knockoffs and you know obviously something went awry somewhere they got something from somebody who claimed that it was C99 it wasn't or something because the plants that I've seen that were grown from the seeds that I've been given by the knockoff companies just don't come out looking like Cinderella 99 or anything yeah. You know, it's not, not really even close. So, the story. Yeah, and that happens. It's like the story that tell, is told at one end of the classroom gets to the other end of the classroom, and it's totally different from where it started. And you can imagine in the 14 years that it took to go from shutting down in 2002 and coming back up in 2016 now, um, that to story has gone all around and upside down, and who knows what's what anymore. So, so push re. Now push the reset button and you can obtain the original strains yeah. from the original breeder and you know easy now too you know we're internationally distributed worldwide and it's easy to get no more complaining so um there seems to be a current fad in the breeding community for people wanting to take things to like say the f2 or the f3 as opposed to say doing a bx2 or a bx3 how do you think these two techniques compare to each other? They've obviously got... There's different reasons why you should do them, but I'm of the opinion that maybe some people just do it because it seems like they've put in a lot of work or something like that. Like, well, how do you feel? Well, you know, I'd say that exceptional people are in the minority by definition, right? I mean, the average person is probably going to make a lot of mistakes and do a lot of guesswork and say, well, maybe this will, you know, they don't have a rhyme or reason for what they're doing. So that's a major fault right there. But then when people are intelligent about their choices and they say, okay, what am I doing here? And they ask all these questions that I always advocate you ask yourself, like, you know, what is it that I really want in my ideal plant? Where am I going with this? What's the end, what's the end goal? Um, and traditionally you had this crossing of uh, one land race to another, and so you'd have your 
P1 generation, these two Landrace strains, and then you create a hybrid from that, an F1 generation. Now, in that F1 generation, you're going to see a certain ratio that everybody's familiar with, 1-3-1, and you then decide if you were crossing these two to start with, neither one of them P1 generation parents was the ideal plant, right? Mm -hmm. But must have had some characteristics that you felt were important and the other one did too, and that's why you're bringing them together. Otherwise, you would have just stayed with either one of those plants and said, hey, I'm happy with these. What's the point of trying to improve on something that I feel is already perfect? Why reinvent the wheel? Yeah, so... You're constantly asking yourself, where are we going? Why am I doing this? What is it that I, what are my goals? And if backcrossing comes into play, it's because one of those two parents is heavily, uh, is is carrying heavily many of the characteristics that you are trying to go for in the goal, and the other one was contributing for some minor reason, okay? But if they're sort of equally contributing, there's not much reason to back cross but then you start looking at that larger group that came from the f1 generation that has the variations in it that isn't the oh these are just you know clones of the mom these are just the clones of dad you know that 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 part that proportion of your uh uh, progeny that, that falls into that category and you concentrate on the ones that varied and are some mix of the two because isn't that what you're going for right you're looking to mix them and blend them in some way but it doesn't always work like a blender but in the f1 generation that larger population is generally like a blender so there is a great tendency for them to be an equal balance of the two and if that's what you're going for you've already arrived you've got the pack of seeds that you just keep crossing that mother and father ad infinitum and why go any further is there a reason to create an f2 or a three or four know know where the end goal is and stop there so what's uh, presumably from that f1 generation the person who looks to make an f2 generation is saying i see a phenotype in here that i want to isolate and then further refine in the next generation such that more of the progeny are of that type yeah yeah so you have to intelligently choose the f1s that you're going to use to make your f2 generation Maybe do it with several of the brothers and sisters so that you have a few different groups to, tr- to try to see, ah, now I'm starting to see a rhyme or a reason here, or which ones actually do what I want to do. Then you intelligently choose from them how to make your F3 generation if that isn't where you really wanted to, to go yet. And then you're looking for stability. Are we starting to get now all the females are alike? You know, and they all have the great qualities that I want? You know, and those are the reasons to accept the challenge of going one more generation and trying to find the right mothers and fathers to give you that seed that you can throw in the ground and reliably say I know what I'm going to get here yeah. every time if that's your goal okay but yeah I mean that's that's how an intelligent breeder goes about working toward creating a strain or getting a, a plant um, and I think that listening to Going back, if you rewind through this and you see how starting from A and B, mother and father, blending them together and having a goal and asking yourself in each generation, am I getting there and what am I doing right or wrong and adjusting for that, that's how each generation gets better. And if you don't get a better generation, you better go back and (laughs) 
fix something yeah. because there's no point moving on when you have an F3 generation that just is dismal to compared to F2. You better go back in the F2 generation and either cross different brothers and sisters to get a better result or realize that F2 is where you need to stop with this. And you may actually have created a seed strain that that generation, when sold to the customer, is producing an amazing plant. However, if he tries to cross his mother, uh, females and males, he's going to get shit and need to buy back seeds. People in many other uh, communities, not the cannabis community as mm. much, or maybe not as vocally, uh, have used that strategy you know, uh, for all of history, basically. Um, sellers of seeds of all different types of flowers and so on, and vegetables yeah. and prized tomatoes or what have you. They want you to not be able to just make more of their seeds that they sold you they want you they want to come back and they want you to come back for repeat business and that sort of thing so that may have been a part of somebody's goal in a breeding program right so yeah so that might have been like wow this is great look at the result we're getting the f2 generation is like this is amazing plant but when you cross the brothers and sisters the f3 generation just falls apart <laughs> perfect let's keep making f2s uh, and selling those seeds yeah and, and and you're good yeah it's almost some monsanto level stuff yeah <laughs> so yeah it smacks yeah. of monsanto but you know i'm just talking about every possibility yeah. uh, what it. could be possible whether you know sounds uh, morally just or yeah. nefarious or what you know so i mean if we were to think about the epigenetics of seeds you mentioned earlier that the soil we have now is much better than the soil we had before. How do you find the seeds of Cinderella, for example, are coming out now versus before? Do you see they're about the same germination ratio? Or do you think that as our you know input ingredients have improved, so has the seed output quality? No, I don't think so. I mean, they because of a better nutritional program that they're on now you think is that what your question yeah, is like, that you know, they may have we've got better soil a better understanding of how soil works and true. we build it yeah. more complete nowadays I don't know it's difficult to say we had great germination rate back in the 90s with what I was doing then and you know I think when a seed is formed it's formed it's you know it's going to be healthy it's it may be larger you know if it, it had it had more energy devoted to it while it was growing uh, many times we see that. Like when you just pollinate a few of the sort of pre-flowers on a veg plant yeah. and they end up growing a seed, it's oftentimes a big one, isn't it? Yeah. So when the plant has a lot of energy to be able to devote to it, the, the seed gets larger. So I would say if I start to, to notice like the seeds now that I'm making are bigger and darker and healthier than the ones I remember from back in the day, then I would say, yeah, that's right. I don't think it's to a degree that's a you know noticeable though. I haven't said to myself, "Wow, it's not like the old days. These are really much bigger and darker." I mean, I think I had healthy seeds then, you know. Yeah. So, would you consider doing a limited release, kind of similar to how the original Apollo 13 was done? And if you did, would you do it in a similar way? Because there is a small trend in the breeding community for people to do very limited release batches and consequently the, the cost per pack is hmm. sometimes astronomical, sometimes quite justifiable. Uh -huh. How would you feel about doing it if you were to do it? Well, I, I think just doing something in a limited quality, uh, limited quantity so that you would uh, have fewer of them to sell and drive demand and price up and 
that's not how I would like to do things. Um, if it were released in a small quantity, it's just because we only had this small quantity. We don't intend to do anything more with this. Um, was, was that a, the case? It was a side project, and I would tend to charge a low price for it or give it away as a freebie when people bought our other strains. You know. And I guess that was the case with the Apollo 13? Kind of. Back in that uh, time, I was giving them to Richard at Heaven Stairway, and he was sort of making those uh, marketing decisions as to, should I sell these or, you know, and how many of them he had, and he decided to sell them. But it was only the one batch, and I didn't have more, so he sold out of whatever 500 seeds or maybe yeah. 50 packs, and... Uh, and that was that. And so we recreated it this year, but I didn't want to, again, you know, do it forever, but we made a lot more than the first time so that there's plenty available for everyone so they can really see what that was. But Apollo 11 was really the goal, and we'll make that as a reliably, uh, you know, appear, appearing on our menu all the time kind of strain. Great. But Apollo 13, for the moment, I think we made quite a good lot of it, and when it's gone, we won't immediately replace it let's say yes yeah, still semi semi unique um so people sometimes talk about returning to our land race roots and we've already mentioned that uh brothers groom is working with the durban mm-hmm. would you ever consider crossing it to another land race or heirloom so to speak and really trying to work out those raw genetics in you know like a somewhat unseen way before see that's um always on the table I mean when you feel like hey I've been um, thinking about a project and it doesn't necessarily have to come from what we already have on our palette you know I could be out on a trip somewhere and make a point of going to some place where I think I'm going to go out and do like a land race seed expedition and come back with some cool stuff and who knows, in our future, you know, I'm an adventurous type of person. I'd like to probably do that one of these times. So, yeah, what would be wrong with that? I would only hesitate to do that if it was just like, you know, to slap two things together. It, we don't do that. You know, we always have some purpose, like a, a forethought of why are we crossing these two? What's the what's the goal? And uh, make, maybe at some point I go somewhere and I find something unique and interesting that I think like, oh, this would be a great project to cross this with whatever else, and then I'd do it. But, you know, it'd have to be thought out a little bit. So, you know, just just from the way your brain works, it kind of, I get the feel that you're always intended to be a breeder. Was it the discovery of those seeds that really planted the seed in your mind to do the breeding? Was it like, these seeds are so amazing, I've got to breed them. Or were you always kind of peripherally thinking about the idea due to your dealings with SSSC? And I think it was more a sense of uh, preservation of the ge- genetics for myself and not be, not losing them. I kind of wanted to say, like, what if ever, you know, I shut down and I want to be able to start up. I'd like to have seeds that could replace the, the clones I've been draw- growing, you know, or whatever. That was one emotion I had. And I just feel like growing the plants is one part of it, but seeing that progression of when you're crossing them and breeding them is fascinating. And to try to <clears throat> get handles on that and you know learn how to control it, 
like anything, you know, I became an engineer, I think, because I was always curious about how does that work? I, I don't want to walk through the world and not know why it takes five seconds for the ball to fall from the 100-foot bridge or whatever, you know. <laughs> I'd like to be able to work that out. <laughs> so when I see all this coming together, like building blocks and, uh, you know, it gives me great joy and satisfaction uh, to, to feel like I have some control over that. Remember when I first got sparked my interest to be a grower in the first place was learning that you mean the photo period and the 12 hours or the 18 I can uh, you know stall time or force them into flowering <laughs> learning that was so you know inspiring that it yeah. really launched me my motivation from that point so were there ever any strains you smoked while you were in between the first and the cone incarnation of Brothers Grimm where you were smoking them and you just kind of thought, wow, like, if I ever come back, I want to work with that. Or maybe now, more so thinking back, you thought of a certain strain you had during the hiatus and thought, yeah, we need to work with that. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I always come back to the Durban tie and say, like, you know, that was something that I would love to try to get get ourselves back into. And we're, we're working on that, and I think we will have a, a good one very soon, so... And then, like I say, you know, there's a sense that during the time I had those seeds and the access to everything, I never tried as much of it as I would have liked to have done and, and learned, you know, like what I was missing, Beatrix and uh, Williams Wonder, those kinds of things that, huh, I wonder what they were like, you know. If I went over the menu and I looked at, you know, item by item, which ones I grew and which ones I have some experience with, you know, there would definitely be somewhere I'd go. You know, I wish I, had, during that time, had thought to myself to grow a little of this and see what that was like. But remember earlier when we almost started the thing out, you know, uh, there was that question about, you know, do you realize you're making history when you're making history? You don't, you know, and at the time, you're not really thinking like, well, one day this won't be here. I won't have it to try that other can, you know, over there of seeds. And I just always thought, you know, yeah, I'm messing around with this one and that one and that one. I'll get around to those ones someday. And then that someday never came, and the rug was kind of pulled out from under me, and I got married to a woman who wanted me to give up marijuana, so... Yeah. So, let's talk about lab percentages, and more specifically, if you guys started getting numbers that were like, you trusted them, and they said, like, legitimately 15%, but you were really happy with the high, and you swear it was killer... Mm-hmm. Would you be happy to tell people those numbers? Like, are you of the belief that the numbers are really kind of not a true picture of what you're getting? Or do you think that they are important in the current climate? I think the reliability of the labs is in question. I know that there's a uh, motivation whenever you're in a business like that. And one of the biggest examples I could give you is Standard and & Poor's and Moody's when they were evaluating stocks during the, the whole um, housing bubble they were competing with each other for their customers' business. And so consequently, they had to rate the stocks higher than they would have normally done if they didn't know that their competitor would have rated them high just to get the customer's business. <clears throat> There's certainly that going on right now. There are labs who are just bumping numbers more and more just to say, geez, you know, where'd you get your test? You know, and the, the, the guys talk to one another and then everybody goes scrambling for that lab because they give the big numbers. <laughs> Come on, I mean, I don't know. I don't believe the numbers. It's, uh, there's, there's no 
I don't think there's enough standardization and enough reliability to those numbers that anybody can really say much about it. Yeah. Maybe there are people who can do, but I don't think that those people are the ones that most people are listening to or working with. But if uh, some group of scientists say that, okay, we've done all of the necessary testing and such to prove that this is true, uh, then it's believable, you know. But I don't think that uh, everybody's using the right equipment or interpreting it properly. But if... Like I say, you know, the right equipment and the right people who know how to use it are saying that we've calibrated all of this. This is the true number. We'll stand on this, you know, f- for all time going forward. If you'll, you'll never find that we did this wrong. We got it right. Yeah. Great, you know. But I don't see in the forms that people hand out, you know, like, oh, here's the piece of paper that said, you know, the results come on, a child could have created a software program that would kick those numbers out and make it look just the same as that piece of paper, right? doesn't prove anything. Yeah. So I would like to see a lot more, you know, uh, proof of, is, is that number believable? Is that something that's a standard that everybody's using and, and everything else? You know? I, don't, I don't think we're there for that. Yeah. You know? so, so, and then there's the greed and the motivation to yeah. have a higher number than the next lab. So what do you think is the future of growing? If we were, say, to kind of break it down into components of, say, lighting technology, growing mediums and nutrients, genetics, what do you think will be the next big leap we make? It's probably pretty easy to say that the most recent leap has been in the lighting with the advent of the double-ended bulbs. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any kind of new prototype technology which has caught your eye? Nope. The lighting is the main thing, really. You know, because everything else is basically HVAC and soil and... What do we have? Uh, drying racks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I zone out and I miss some things. I don't know. What are we talking about? The ah, stones. yeah. The technology of... In yeah. the soil, for sure, uh, yeah, I think soil technology, so to speak, has improved a lot. But then again, so is lighting. Yeah. Now, there's so many... There, 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 there's a lot of little subtle things. And, you know, I tend to just sort of make broad sweeps with my brush sometimes. Um, not always to great effect. But anyway... Um, okay. T- today, what? Yeah? Stopping? Yeah? No, I was just going to say... Um, we we see a lot of news about the new skunk lines coming out. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have any plans to re-release any other old staples? And do you want to give us any more info on when we can expect to see these skunk varieties more well, available? When you say old staples, not necessarily our old staples. Yeah, that, you not know, things that were yeah. just things. No, that going are, back to yeah. Well, it's all about. Uh, back to the future a little bit with us I guess you know we, we <laughs> we'd like to go back to the roots and bring people the old original strains reliable consistent plants uh, you know that our seeds aren't all over the place and they are what we claim them to be and the descriptions are accurate and such um, but going back to any particular crosses it's not necessarily always in mind as to you know, which ones they might be uh, but 
I guess I go by feel in life uh, quite a bit and those those things aren't something where I can say like oh over the next two years there's a plan to do this that and the other thing but three to six months out we usually know what we're doing and it's kind of like a, we'll get some information the about projects it. suggest themselves to us <laughs> you know as we go along yeah so when you go back to when you were first doing the initial backcross project to even now who were some of the breeders who you looked up to slash do you still look up to any breeders or is it more so now just a scientific well, I mean, process I don't necessarily know if I even knew who they were I mean Neville was a name that was bandied about back then as a breeder who you know was in the news and in the magazine high times and such and so I did know of him and um then you know there's uh, DJ Short and Breeder uh, Steve and Vikai and you know the mates that I knew off of the internet that we were all kind of colleagues at the time doing similar things and like I say no competition really it's just uh, everybody doing their own thing and kind of being friendly about it and um, that was my little community but I didn't ever know any of the big you know like a, a name like Neville somebody who's not on the same continent as me and I didn't cross paths with and the communication and information was not as good then you know, clearly so well if you found out that Cache uh, was actually Neville probably <laughs> and he you know and he wanted to work with you on something is that something you want to do or you think uh, it's well, just different of course worlds? I mean I'm uh, I like, you know, I'm, I'm a friendly person. I've always uh, been open-minded and I'll talk to anybody about anything and I have respect for I have respect for him, so uh, why would I turn down a conversation, you know? <laughs> I'm trying to make this DTC 99 happen. <laughs> yeah, well, if he's got the other half and... Yeah, yeah there was something He said he does have seeds and yeah. stuff. Yeah, I'm sure. So... He's waiting. He probably knows what he's going to do with them. Uh, so... How do you feel about the Colorado cannabis scene? How do you, and you know, and specifically, do you think Colorado has it the best, or do you think maybe some other states have figured it out a little better than them? I don't have a lot of experience in the other states, and in Colorado, the cannabis scene is almost, you know, Reed Dab scene. You know, like <laughs> it's not a cannabis scene so much as a dab scene and a glass scene and a pecking order of uh, folks who are sort of trying to find their place here. And, you know, there's a lot of very heady, uh, no pun intended, uh, you know, a, a very heady a atmosphere them, for them to, at a young age, come and have an exposure to so much freedom and uh, an ability to be in a community like this where they may have had a dream of what it was going to be like before they got here and found that the reality wasn't quite what they thought it was going to be and many turn around and have to come go back where they came from so you see all of that sort of thing and then you know you also have at the other end of the spectrum folks who have made a business of inviting all of these folks who do very well in the business out to big parties and they have uh, after parties and you know the it's uh, rubbing elbows with, you know, all of the muckety-muck of uh, glass-blowing artists and who knows what else, you know. So it's a, 
that's what I've experienced, and I don't have another state to compare it to, but it's a vastly different terrain than growing up, uh, you know, consuming cannabis as a teenager and a young adult uh, throughout the other parts of my life. The dabbing in glass alone is a game changer. It's just like this, uh, oh my, you know, isn't that a whole different way of doing that, uh, enjoying this uh, cannabis, which... Um, you know, I'm a little bit neutral on. I like it sometimes, but I don't make it, a, you know, my yeah. main thing at all. Yeah. So, we're at the end of it, and we just got some little short answer questions to blast through quickly. Yes and no? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'll give you two questions, and you can answer with yes. I'm sorry. You don't have to give me yes or no questions. Um, so, yeah. no, true and false. What's your favorite strain right now? I am um, pretty partial to the uh, Genius Haze. Uh, that's a you know really nice uh, up new strain that we have. And um, Apollo Eleven. I mean, you know, I, I have to pick a favorite, right? You know, so you know, it's we're playing around the Princess Haze too. We haven't released it yet because we don't have large enough quantities. So, yeah, you, you know, that's tough. Sophie's choice, you know. And what's one of your favorite strains from the past that's now lost, you know? Oh, lost, huh? Well, it wasn't anything known to anybody else, but I, I grew, you know, across from when I was working with SSSC that I just thought was, and Keish thought as well, when I shared it with them, I told them what I had done, and I'd taken that Durban tie and crossed it to a skunk number one, and got these early maturing purple uh, budded uh, outdoor plants that were absolutely killer in both flavor and aroma and great potency I sold some to a guy uh, thanks I sold some to a guy who worked in a restaurant and I only had the bit that I sold him and he came back to me asked me for more I said I don't have the same one I have something else even though the second one was a very good weed he came back to me complaining later like you know uh, that first one was killer you know the second one what the fuck was that you know i'm like uh, i'm sorry dude you know it's perfectly respectable weed it's just that that first one was like this mind-blowing shit that i grew outdoors and uh, i lost the seeds from that so i i guess that would have been one of the biggest i wish i had those seeds today that that was quite amazing um if you could go to one place geographically and one place in time to get seeds where would you go wow what a great question huh whoo man back in time Gee, I guess um, you know it would be uh, thrilling I guess is uh, go back and be in Vietnam with the uh, during the war and uh, Thailand or Cambodia or one of those places and uh, and get you know have some adventure that I don't get killed, right? But I have a bunch of really exciting moments where, you know, yeah, the whole, uh, uh, you know, Raiders of the Lost Tomb for a weekend or something where I get laid three times and, you know, find a whole pile of cash and come back with sacks of uh, original uh, seeds from these amazing plants. (laughs) Yeah, I'll take that. Thank you. Um, So what's the worst strain in your opinion or you know maybe a more politically sensitive way would be what's the strain that you just didn't agree with personally the most hmm didn't agree with me 
when I spoke something and it just didn't agree with me. Let me see about that. You know, it's, uh, I don't want to try and slag anybody's weed or anything. Let me see here. But uh, I can't even say, you know, it would be embarrassing to someone. And it's just, you know, <laughs> stuff that's been sent to me. And I grew it out and said, hmm, all right. At least then it kind of lets me know what that person thinks is good, you know, but... <laughs> And then it kind of confirms why when I send people samples of my buds, they rave and like, oh my God. And I'm like, really? You think it's that good? Seriously? You know? <laughs> so, but yeah, I wouldn't single out any one strain or any, any one person who has sent me something that didn't work out. But, you know, those, that would be the basket I would turn to to, to answer that question and say, uh, this is something that was a disappointment. Okay. So last... that what, what, did you want a disappointment or something that just turned me off altogether and I hate it? I don't want to smoke that pot. Yeah, you know, if you're willing to I know you want it. that exciting, uh, <laughs> thrilling, uh, theatrical answer there, the dramatic answer. I, I kind of do have a common denominator feeling about smoking marijuana that, you know, it's all getting high on marijuana. There are a lot of subtle differences between the strains and all this type of thing, but there's a common denominator there where it's like, did you get high on pot? Yep, I'm high on pot. You know, and they all do that to you to some degree and with some flavors of one thing or another, either psychoactivity or actual taste bud palates. Um, but it's all pot, you know. Maybe yeah. I... I I can simplify sometimes a little too much, <laughs> but it's all pot, you know. You smoke some hash, it's different than smoking flowers. You smoke some dab, it's different than the other thing, but there's, you still know you have a marijuana high, don't you, you know? Yeah. So. So, final question. Can't be too disappointed. <laughs> I guess that's my point. So, yeah, the final question. Yeah. Are you going to do any more photo exhibitions, and when? Ah, uh, uh, probably not in uh, any uh, time soon. If the the bug strikes me and I start to work a little bit more at it, but I've been lazy in photography ever since leaving New York, and you know, I do a bit here and there just for my own pleasure Would it be and to keep cannabis up with the orientated. I don't know. Yeah, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think that I could uh, take stuff that I did and the style of photography that I developed for myself and adapt it to what we do here and I've done that a few times in different ways if I had work enough body of work to put together to say like you know here's some interesting spins on cannabis photography then I had maybe a dozen pieces to show or something I might you know but it's way down the list of priorities there's so much to do all the time now Awesome. So I think that just about wraps it up. Mm, yeah, thanks. Um, I'd love to thank yourself for coming on the show and giving us some awesome stories and a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> Is there any comments or shout-outs you wanted to make before we wrap it up? Shout-out to the Growstones folks and the uh, Dragonfly folks, um, Greenhouse uh, Greenhouse Hydro Supply down in Longmont on Main Street. They've been so good to us. Um, you know... Um, High times, I guess I have to give a shout-out to Danny Danko. He's been hanging in there with me and communicating with me recently. We're going to get some articles uh, written about us in high times, and some of my photography will appear in the magazine as well. So uh, watch for that. Sweet. Yeah, thanks, thanks so again. Much. Yeah, it was a great pleasure.
So there you have it. A huge thank you again to Mr. Soul. Brothers Grimm. Organic Gardening Solutions. 420 Australia. The Billy Shop. See you.